today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. In regard to uh, the Danforth shooting, lots of information coming up, uh, coming out rather, uh, some of it credible, some of it not so credible uh, in regard to uh, the origin of the gun and Islamic State ISIS claiming responsibility for the shooting in Toronto. However, uh, there doesn't seem to be any proof of that whatsoever at this point. So, uh, so say officials, uh, including Toronto police. Let's bring in Mary Ann Demain, reporter for Global News. She is with us now. Uh, Mary Ann, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. You're welcome. Can you give us a bit of an update? What's the situation now? Uh, the latest we have, from what I understand, is on the gun, and that is that the gun uh, did not originate in Canada. It originated in the U.S. Is that correct? Is there anything you can shed on that? Um, yeah, well, there's a lot of things that uh, our newsroom is still trying to confirm. That is one aspect of the investigation that Global News has not yet confirmed ourselves. That has been reported um, today, but uh, unfortunately on our end, we have not officially been able to confirm that. But that's just one thing that we're looking into, including, as you mentioned, the claim by ISIS that they are behind Sunday's attack. And, uh, you know, at this point, the chief has said that there's no evidence of that. We know that they were at the suspected gunman's apartment in Thorncliffe Park, not far from Danforth, where the shooting took place. They haven't said exactly what they've seized from his apartment, but at this point, they still don't know what the motive is. And so uh, an extension of that is that there's no indication at this point that corroborates what the Islamic State has said this morning. What are their comments on ISIS claiming responsibility for this? Well, they haven't really said much in that regard, other than that their investigation is continuing, and then there's no evidence that they have uncovered so far to imply that that is true. So that's to be continued on that front. But at this point, even the public safety minister has said that there is no link to national security in light of this claim. So that is something that at this point doesn't seem to be um, something police have confirmed or appear to be close to confirming at any point. Uh, Have you heard anything more in regard to why ISIS would make these claims? I understand that of late uh, that they will make these claims no matter what the scenario is. Uh, Apparently they did the same thing in Las Vegas. Uh, Any more on that? Unfortunately, not more than what police have said and what the public minister, uh, minister of public safety, I should say, has said, and that is that there is no evidence at this point that there is any connection to national security and to what happened on the Danforth. Um, Once they have any idea of what the motive is, they will likely give more indication as to whether what the Islamic State is claiming is true. But as of right now, there is nothing to indicate that what they're saying is you know, consistent with what police have found so far. All right. Uh, so uh, no evidence to, to link this to ISIS other than the fact that they're claiming responsibility for it, which they have in other scenarios, which they have not been involved. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the victims. Uh, what more can you tell us there on that angle? Yeah, so we finally know the name of the 10-year-old girl who was killed in this attack. At this point, we only knew her age and the name of the 18-year-old woman who was killed. That's Reese Fallon. But yesterday, police released the name of the 10-year-old. Her name is Juliana Cosis. She is from Markham, and she was in town on Sunday enjoying dessert with her father in one of the cafes along the Danforth, and that's where the gunman had opened fire, firing into the establishment where people were just out enjoying their evening. Unfortunately, Juliana was shot, as was her father. Both of them were among the 15 who were shot that night, both rushed to hospital. And then on Monday, police had said that a second victim had passed away, and we now know that was Juliana. Oh, my. And what do we know about the father's condition at this point? Do we? Uh, We don't know anything about the specific conditions of the people who remain in hospital, and that includes the father. We know that... He was with her in hospital and that he did undergo surgery, how he's doing right now, what specifically his condition is. Right now, we don't know. Our newsroom did check on several hospitals in and around the GTA, and we do know that at least five or more people remain in hospital. Of those, one is in stable condition and two that we know of are still in critical condition. Police also said after this happened that the victims ranged in age from 10 to 59 years old. But again, um, how many people have specifically been released and how those who remain in hospital are doing, we don't know other than that two are still in critical condition. Uh, Are you surprised we haven't heard more information on this? I mean, I can understand if the investigation is ongoing, but even involved, even involving the victims, uh, we don't even know if any or how many have been released, do we at this point? 
Um, well, it's really a case-by-case case situation on what each hospital is willing to reveal. Of course, there's a lot of confidentiality concerns, especially with this kind of investigation. Sure. There's uh, Michael Guerin Hospital, Sunnybrook Hospital, St. Michael's Hospital. Different trauma centers receive different patients, so it's really dependent on what they're willing to reveal. We know that two of the people who remain in critical condition are at St. Michael's Hospital. How it all breaks down at Sunnybrook and Michael Guerin, it, it really depends on the, the different facilities. Uh, what more do we know about the shooter? Uh, obviously, uh, the family released uh, a press release. Have we? Has anybody actually heard from the family? Because now we're hearing questions that, you know, it's kind of odd that the family puts out a press release like this when they've just lost their son and, and of course, the loss of two other lives and, and the rest in hospital and such. Has there been any more investigation into him or his family? Yeah, police have not stopped looking into him and his past and anything that might, they might uncover from the family home where he lived in an apartment in Thorncliffe Park. As you mentioned, they did have a release one day after the shooting occurred where they confirmed that their son had suffered from a lifetime of serious mental health issues, including psychosis and depression. They said they tried to treat it with doctors and medications to no avail. They also um, have released a photo of him, but Global News has learned from a source that he had actually been apprehended by police twice in the past under the Mental Health Act, and that at one point in his life, he actually believed that he was the Joker from the Batman movies. Uh, so anything beyond that, those are from sources that have spoken to Global News. Again, any in, uh, any investigation, I should say, into um, what could have possibly motivated this deadly shooting on Sunday is what police are still trying to piece together. And so they have remained at his home and they're leaving no stone unturned. As you can imagine, they're looking at um, his cell phones, his computers, anything that might shed light as to why this happened. And then as we spoke earlier about the gun, where did that gun come from? And if it's true that it was uh, an illegal handgun, how did he get it, especially since he did suffer from mental illness? Uh, that, of course, is the, is the big question at this point. Uh, do we know anything about the person or the persons who wrote the press release and their relationship to the family? What we know is that it's a friend of the family specifically who released it. We don't know. As you can appreciate, too, in an investigation like this, a lot of interest was also not only on the shooter, but also on the victims. Who were they? What were they doing? So as much as there's attention on the shooter as well, um, any information about him, um, came from whatever uh, family member or friend released that information. Um, as far as any confirmation that he actually did suffer from mental illness, we haven't been able to confirm that through any, any kinds of doctors who might have seen him at some point in his life. But our crime specialist, Catherine McDonald, had confirmed that there were some issues with him at his local high school to the point that they had um, called authorities on him and he had to change high schools. So there seems to be some kind of pattern that he had dealt with this and then, of course, being apprehended by police under the Mental Health Act. Uh, any more on his social media presence or uh, any sort of footprint that way? Unfortunately, police have not released any information about that. Um, anything about what they might have found on his computers, and nothing's really been revealed about any kind of presence he's had on any kind of websites or blogs or any kind of chats that might give any indication as to what his interests were leading up to the deadly shooting. All we really know that has really given us a bigger picture of the type of person he was is, you know, the information about his struggles with mental illness. Uh, do you think, how much are we, do you think, going to find out about this person as time goes on, especially because he can't be charged, he's not here with us? Uh, well, and that's the thing, in, the, in today's you know, technological age, there is so much that you can access about someone if they were on different chats and websites, like we saw with the Young Street fan attack. It was really clear that he had um, certain ideologies, he had been part of different chat groups, but nothing like that has emerged so far, and that's kind of unusual so many days after the deadly shooting. It has only been about three days or so, and the fact that no information like that has come forward it, uh, makes you wonder whether he actually was involved in any kind of online community or anything like that. It doesn't mean he wasn't. We just haven't heard anything about that right. so far. Uh, how did we find out that ISIS had taken uh, responsibility for this? H how do we know that that's credible? Well, a lot of uh, authorities are questioning the credibility of this, as one would when um, responsibility is claimed after incidents like this, where police 
don't have any kind of evidence corroborating that claim. There was a statement this morning that was released. Um, it came from uh, somebody who claimed to be a source who got that confirmation and then issued the statement. Um, and that prompted, of course, a lot of calls to national security experts and, of course, their public safety minister. But again, at this point, um, you know, how that came out and whether there's even any validity to it. It doesn't seem like police are really putting much weight on it at this point. Do we know when we will receive more information from police? You know, I'm thinking back to the van attack or even go back to uh, uh, the uh, Aaron Driver and that situation uh, with the explosion in his own uh, driveway. We don't seem to hear a lot about these after the fact. Are, Are you concerned that we won't find out more here? Because no, we I, because we don't have a you know a, a killer, right? Uh, what makes this a little bit different from the investigation into the van attack is the fact that there is also a special investigations unit investigation as well going on at the same time that police are holding their own investigation. Right. And for those who don't know, the SIU is an independent police watchdog. They investigate any time a civilian is seriously injured or killed um, in an incident involving police. And we know there was that gunfire between the suspect and the police. The suspect right away, a few feet later, he's found and he's dead. There was an autopsy yesterday. Police have not revealed what the findings of that autopsy were. Neither has the SIU. Um, there are questions about why that has not been revealed. But as far as getting information quickly, we know that police had said that they are working on it and they're hoping to get the information out there. It's possible, like we've seen in other investigations, like the Bruce MacArthur investigation, that they have information that they cannot release for various reasons so that it doesn't compromise the work they've already done. Whether that's the case in this case, uh, we won't know until, you know, once all of this is said and done, or whether um, they're holding their cards closer to the chest for a particular reason. But I know that the chief has said that uh, they're going to try to get the information to us once they get it. Um, the big question is, why did this happen? And, and at this point, they haven't answered even that. Are you, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting if you do my end of this game, there's lots of chatter whether we're getting all the information that we need to be getting uh, and, and if we're getting it uh, in, in a transparent fashion. Uh, interesting um, article out of CBS News yesterday, Toronto shooting rampage, new de- details emerge uh, about gunmen. And, you know, they basically, I'm, I'm reading the article right now, but a law enforcement source told CBS News that, uh, Faisal Hussein visited Islamic State of Iraq or in Syria ISIS websites and may have expressed support for the terrorist group. They were looking into whether Hussein may have lived at once one time in Afghanistan and possibly Pakistan. A lot of people are asking why we don't hear that here and why we're hearing it in U.S. media. Any, you want any, any sort of idea? Want to reflect on that? Um, well, as you can appreciate, uh, different reporters have different sources. They follow different avenues to get information. Where they got that information. I couldn't tell you, but I know the Toronto media, including our newsroom, has been working hard to confirm specific details of this investigation. And from the information that we have gotten, which is from the chief of police and the minister of public safety, there is no link to national security. So whether, again, as I mentioned, this is a matter of them holding their cards close to their chest because it could compromise some of the work they've already uncovered, or whether there really is no link to the Islamic State we can only report on what we have confirmed from officials. Mm-hmm. So where they got that information, I couldn't tell you. Um, doesn't mean that uh, it's not necessarily true, but we can only go on the facts that we've confirmed. And at this point, we have not confirmed anything like that. Have there been any future uh, press conferences by police scheduled at this point? What, what, mm-hmm. Where have they left things? Yeah, not at this point. Um, normally, they will let us know through the media relations office or via Twitter, and nothing's come out at this point um, as far as any scheduled updates or, or news conferences, so we're pretty much taking it minute by minute to see um, whether any any new information will break throughout the day. Marianne Demaine has been with us, reporter, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on this. Marianne, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting article uh, in the, at cbc.ca 
in regard to immigration in Canada. The headlines, uh, with all eyes on the U.S. southern border, illegal crossings from Canada quietly increase. U.S. Border Patrol affidavit details Mexicans paying smugglers uh, to cross uh, into Canada and then into the United States. Mexicans wanting to illegally enter the U.S. are flying over at first, landing in Canada, and then walking across the northern border, sometimes with the help of human smugglers, according to the RCMP and U.S. Border Patrol. To talk more about all of this, joining is joining us is Joel Sandalock, partner, my man Sandalock Kingwell, LLP, and is with us now. Joel, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This seems to be another dimension to this uh, uh, asylum seeker story that we've been talking about for so many months now. How big is this issue where people are coming uh, into Canada and then trying to get into the United States? It's hard to say exactly. Historically, this is the way that it always was. This is the reason that Canada entered into a safe third country agreement in the first place. Because most people, when they come to North America, are not ultimately destined to Canada. They're destined to the United States. It's a much bigger country with a much bigger economy. A lot of people, when they come to this to this continent, come here because they have family members, relatives, and just odds being what they are, it's more likely than not that somebody's going to be ultimately destined to the United States. That's why the Safe Third Country Agreement functioned in Canada's favor so well for so many years, because what would happen is that people who are entering Canada through the U.S. would not, uh, would attempt to enter through a border, a regular border crossing, would be denied the opportunity to make a refugee claim now. And it's only now that a lot of people are trying to cross irregularly at non-designated, non-designated border crossings that, uh, you know, the, the agreement is really being called into, into question. Excuse me. So how are they getting into Canada? Well, in the case of the people referred to in the article, um, Canada doesn't require a visa for certain countries that the United States does, and the most obvious of which is Mexico. So for the last little while, uh, Mexicans have not needed visas to enter Canada, making flights from Mexico City or other locations into Canada relatively easy. Those people are then admitted to Canada as visitors. The expectation is that they'll visit, they'll go back, and that'll be the end of it. Mm -hmm. But what's happening in certain cases is they're meeting up with smugglers who are already in Canada, who are then being taken across the American border with Canada, which is much easier to cross than the American border with Mexico. How, uh, once word of this gets out, are you worried or concerned that this could increase, similar to the situations that we're seeing started in Manitoba and, and eventually in Quebec and such? Uh, not really, to be honest. I mean, if this does become an issue, uh, the Canadian government can do what they did for years uh, and impose a visa requirement for Mexicans. And then that would make it very difficult for Mexicans to access Canada just due to the location. Um, so that would be the ultimate, uh, the ultimate weapon that the Canadian government would have to put the brakes on this is if it ever becomes necessary. Ultimately, though, as a Canadian, am I concerned? The short answer is not really. I mean, they're not actually destined for Canada. And this is the kind of traffic that the Safe Third Country Agreement was meant to avoid. So I don't think it's, uh, you know, when you consider the size of the border, the massive amount of legitimate tra- uh, traffic in both people and goods and services that cross the border every day, this is probably a drop in the bucket. It's smaller than a drop in the bucket, in my, my opinion. How concerned is the U.S. about this? What happens if this gets in Donald Trump's crosshairs? It's hard to say. Um, you know, given the relationship between our two countries at the moment, and given the central uh, focus that immigration has had in a lot of American political controversy, it's hard to say how anybody would react or what kind of tweet could possibly be drafted during this, uh, as a result of this. Um, my suspicion is it won't be that big of a concern, um, and it's not likely to affect Canadians uh, one way or the other. Is this an attractive route for those willing to do this? Is, is um, not to promote it or anything, but is this, is this a viable avenue for them? Is, is it a viable possibility in their eyes? Um, I think for a lot of people it is a viable possibility. I mean, it's, it's an easier border to cross. We've all crossed into the United States from time to time, and it hasn't been, I mean, it, it, generally speaking, the border is big. It's not particularly well guarded. And there's many sort of well-known crossing points, whether there be maybe farmer's fields or railway bridges or what have you. Um, so I can imagine why for many Mexicans attempting to enter the United States, it would be very appealing. Um, that being said, uh, it's also not the easiest thing in the world to do. The borders are monitored. They are watched. And uh, people, people, when they are caught... Um, are routinely uh, intercepted 
detained and then sent back to their country of nationality. So, is it know, worth it, doing this? I mean, you know, we hear the stories of people coming through the fence and and where they've come from and and fearing pro, pro, uh, persecution and such. Uh, and obviously, as we've talked to uh, Giddy Maman about this, is that, you know, for them, it's, you know, this little opportunity is better than nothing. Is it the same with this situation? It arguably is. I mean, it really depends on what you're running away from. You know, people who come to North America looking for just a better life, better opportunities, better employment prospects, it may not be worth it for them. People who are literally running for their lives. Um, yeah. Frankly, if my life were in danger, my, my family's life were in danger, I'd be willing to put up with a lot, and I'd be willing to take risks that I might not be willing to take otherwise. So you, you kind of have to look at each individual situation and see what, what are they really running away from. Um, something, you know, if you're running towards better opportunity, then it may not be worth it. If you're running for your life, literally, then, I mean, arguably it may be better than staying where you are. Who is doing this? Who is coming in? Who is getting into the United States through Canada? It's hard to say exactly. I mean, the, from what I've read, it seems like the uh, people are primarily Mexicans, and mostly because Mexico doesn't have a visa requirement right now. Um, also, there's other countries, though, that uh, where uh, visas are not required of Canada but are of the United States. So, for example, I believe Romanians, Bulgarians right now um, are crossing into Canada and, and uh from Canada into the United States. It's basically anybody who has an easier ticket to Canada than they do to the U.S. Uh, would choose, and they wish to enter the U.S. illegally, would choose to uh, enter the U.S. at this border crossing rather than uh, via the southern border of the United States. Joel, what would their life be like if they did get into America? Once they get there and they make it across, say, what is life like for them? Because obviously they're not officially welcomed. Are you there, Joel? Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yeah, there you go. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, it's hard to say. If they get intercepted while they're crossing into the United States, uh, many of them are detained, and they're simply languishing right now in privately run prisons in the United States. And for them, it's honestly a bit of a nightmare. Um, they're separated from their families before they're eventually deported from the U.S. So not much would be worth that. On the other hand, if they're able to successfully enter the United States and live underground, there's a massive underground economy. But, you know, what their options are at that point are very, very limited, very limited in terms of employment, access to social services, uh, anything of that nature. And unlike Canada, the United States doesn't really have a means, a program by which people who've entered that country illegally are ever able to regularize their status. So they'd be essentially entering the United States and living the balance of their lives in purgatory uh, with no ability to leave, no ability to successfully really integrate and uh, having the basically the possibility of arrest, detention, and deportation always hanging over their heads. Give us a little bit of an update, sw- switching gears here, Joel, to uh, the situation with those coming through the fence. Lisa McLeod, Ontario's minister responsible for immigration, uh, said yesterday that they're asking the federal government for $200 million uh, to cover the cost of, of asylum seekers uh, from the United States. Where are we with this story? Is that slowing down? Is it picking up again? We're hearing it starting to pick up. Yeah, for, I had heard for the last couple of months the uh, slow head uh, or the uh, flow of people from into Canada through the United States had slowed considerably, um, which is unusual because in the past every, the assumption was that weather, when weather was better and travel was easier, yeah. uh, the flow would increase. Uh, now, what the government is talking about, the provincial government is talking about, is concerns with the cost of providing social services for people who've entered uh, Canada seeking asylum. And the reason the Ontario government is particularly concerned is entirely logical, and that's that most people who enter Canada attempt to usually wind up in Ontario. Uh, That's where people are most likely to have families. That's where most people are likely to be able to find work. And as a result, the major centres in Ontario, particularly Toronto, are under an unusual amount of strain in terms of uh, housing, social services, medical services, um, everything like this. And And the province is asking for some funds. Some funds have been promised by the, from the federal government. Um, I don't think anything near $200 million has been offered by the federal government. But this is because, you know, when an asylum seeker comes to Canada, um, are they, although they are able to work and they are able to integrate into Canada, uh, not everybody is able to do that immediately. Um, and these costs, are, uh, from what I understand, are primarily the shorter-term costs of shelter and uh, immediate social services. Generally speaking, in my experience from the clients that I've represented, most asylum seekers who enter Canada 
they enter. Uh, they may accept social assistance very briefly at the initial uh, stages, but they start working as soon as they're issued a permit, and they generally don't stop. So um, as far as integration is concerned, uh, especially the types of people who are crossing the border right now, who are coming from the United States and have been living in the United States for many years, uh, will likely integrate fairly quickly, just even, even if you only say due to their proficiency in English. Uh, they will be much better off than many other asylum seekers when they enter. So I'm not sure where the where the money is, uh, you know, why that particular figure has been settled on. It seems like a very round figure, hmm. um, but you know that's the, that's the source of it. Uh, we remember uh, in the spring, I guess it was uh, late winter, early spring, that a lot were um, uh, held up or a lot were accommodated in. Uh, uh, college dorms, university dorms and such, with the school year coming up in September, we understand that they're going to be moving uh, a lot from uh, these dormitory situations to motels and such. What happens after that? It's hard to say exactly. I mean, Canada isn't obliged to house these people forever. Um, And how long can you sustain that? Because, you know, you're thinking, well, universities, colleges, that's got to be a bit cheaper than hotel rooms, motel rooms. I imagine it would for sure be a lot cheaper. I, my my expectation is that a lot of this this uh, pressure will be managed uh, by simply evicting people from uh, the universities and colleges and allowing them to then find their own accommodations after that. I, I expect that it will be probably a relatively small number of people who move to uh, motels outside of the city. In many cases, simply because a lot of those people are already, uh, once they've been able to find work, removing them from the city where their employment is uh, might be very difficult for them. So my suspicion is it'll probably, it, it is not likely to be very many people, but it's this reason that's caused the Ontario minister to characterize this present situation as a crisis, uh, because in her view, and it's not in, not unreasonable, a lot of these people who are presently uh, in uh, housing, in student housing, will then be on the street. And what will happen as a result of that, uh, it's hard to say exactly, and the government needs a little bit of money in their mind to accommodate those people, at least in the short term while they transition. Any idea of those who have uh, have tried to seek asylum in this country since this all started? Any idea how many, what percentage get to stay, what percentage are sent back? I haven't seen the actual figures on uh, the success rates of uh, the refugee claims. Um, my understanding is that it's a very difficult, and one of the things I, I tell people all the time, if I ever get contacted by somebody who's contemplating a trip to the border, is that it's not easy, um, especially when you enter Canada through the United States where you've been residing in that country for a long time. There's a serious issue of what's called subjective fear. And what that basically means is that you've been, if you've been living in the United States for years, you've been working, you've been making your life, you haven't been behaving in a manner consistent with somebody who has a well-founded fear of persecution. One of the other issues in a lot of claims like this is that with the passage of time, a lot of the people who are afraid um, the reasons for their fears no longer exist. So, for example, due to things like a change in government in, say, Zimbabwe, uh, for, due to things like, uh, in the case of domestic violence, where a domestic a perpetrator of domestic violence maybe has died or become seriously ill and is no, no longer able to perpetrate that kind of violence, what happens is the reasons for the claim no longer exist. It then becomes very difficult because the refugee test is a forward-looking test. What that means is that uh, in order for a claim to be granted, a decision-maker has to be satisfied that a person would be likely to be persecuted, that there would be a serious possibility of persecution going forward should they be returned to their country of nationality. So in the case, for example, of somebody who was, had fled Zimbabwe because they were a member of minority political party and they were afraid of uh, Robert Mugabe's government, since that government is no longer in power, their return to Zimbabwe would really not be the same kind of issue that it was even a few years ago. So for that reason, what happens is a lot of the a lot of these refugee claims get stale, and a lot of them are unsuccessful. So it's, it's a very difficult prospect. I think a lot of people um, have the expectation that crossing the border, uh, people will simply be able to stay in Canada. But the system, even though it's even though it's uh, under pressure right now, has a very good rate of churning out decisions, and generally speaking, making very good decisions. Obviously, your uh, law firm represents, you're an immigration law firm, you represent people trying to uh, get into the country and such and and are going through the proper channels to do so. Um, How do those people feel about uh, 
people who have, I guess we're calling now asylum seekers? Or can you really even compare the two, uh, someone who's trying to to get in here uh, legitimately as opposed to someone who's running for their life? You can't really. They're two completely different systems. They're two completely different legal tests. And generally speaking, somebody who's attempting to enter the Canada, enter the Canada through legitimate means isn't really impacted by asylum seekers. It's, if you can imagine, it's a, it's a completely different lineup. Um, so there's no, there's no real pressure between the two. I've heard people express frustration that Canada's letting in Syrians, and they're letting in people from the border, and here I am having all kinds of trouble getting my, you know, my university credentials verified. Yeah. The answer to that, though, very simply, is that you know, if you're able to get into Canada as a skilled worker under Express Entry or some other program, your life will be infinitely easier. Your ability to integrate will be infinitely easier than somebody who comes to Canada, makes a refugee claim, has to live with uncertainty um, before ultimately decide, uh, determining whether they get to stay or if they have to go. And uh, generally speaking, I think people recognize that when they enter Canada legitimately, they are far better off in every respect. Is this situation going to get worse before it gets better, or is it all manageable, and, and at the end of the day, it's what we do? My, it's hard to say exactly, to be honest. Um, it's, it feels like, just anecdotally, that the uh, flow is slowly diminishing into Canada, and that the initial shock of groups of people from the United States entering Canada um, is beginning to subside. Uh, my view of it is that it has always been manageable. Uh, you know, dealing with claims, dealing with claimants has always been manageable. And it co- it's not to say it doesn't cost money, uh, but generally speaking, Canada is going to be just fine. When you look at the hundreds of thousands of people that Canada lets in, admits as permanent residents every year, this is really just a tiny trickle of people. And although it, although you have to dedicate resources to deal with them, um, it's hardly a question of uh, Canada being overwhelmed by foreign uh, nationals entering the border. The, if you were to compare the situation to, say, some of the smaller countries in Europe, uh, who were food, people were simply walking across countries like, say, Hungary, Romania, those countries are under far more pressure than Canada is. And uh, those countries, although it's very easy for Canadians to criticize those countries for the, you know, the right-wing governments that they elect or the treatment of uh, asylum seekers when they cross the border, Canada's never had to deal with anything remotely close to that kind of pressure. That being said, will the chatter of Mexicans entering the United States via Canada, will, that, will, will Donald Trump want to build a wall now? You know, I don't think he's going to be building any walls anywhere, frankly. What about if we um, want to build the, the wall between us and the United States? Is that allowed? Never mind. Yeah, <laughs> you, don't, you don't think this is going to get his attention at all? You know what? I never know what's going to get his attention from one day to the next. So I wouldn't, uh, I honestly wouldn't be in a position to comment on it. But, uh, you know, does it deserve his attention? No, it, it really doesn't deserve it, that, you know, for whatever that's worth. Joel Sandaluk is with his partner, my man Sandaluk Kingwell, LLP. Joel, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. It's my pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in, and boy, we've used her a lot this week, uh, Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, Alyssa Freeman PR. Uh, She brought up a very interesting point uh, yesterday in regard to the Danforth shooting, and it seems that the story uh, and her angle has has, uh, gotten a bit of legs and people are asking questions. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman one more time. Alyssa, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. I always like it when I turn out to be right, Scott. <laughs> this was, you know, and I did not, once you brought it to my attention, I, I, I focused on it. But I honestly, when you mentioned it on the air yesterday, I, 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 I never really had thought of this. You brought up when we were talking about uh, the Danforth shooter, uh, his family releasing a, ver- a very formal, a very professional uh, sort of a press release uh, to the public, sort of creating and starting the narrative in regard to uh, mental illness. Talk about that, what you said, and how you're feeling 24 hours later. Okay. Well, the first thing I noticed as um, a strategic communications veteran, I guess, 
is, you know, there are certain things that play out uh, very systematically when it comes to engaging in crisis communications. And what I mean by that is having to come up with a plan in order to deal with the crisis. Now, this was very real crisis. This was about a horrendous shooting that happened in my city, and it just basically turned everything upside down. However, as soon as we found out the name of the shooter, Faisal Hazan, no sooner did we hear that name than, boom, there was a statement professionally crafted um, explaining away what may have been in Faisal Hazan's uh, mind um, prior to and while he was engaging in his shooting rampage. And the statement itself concentrated on his family issues and also on his um, mental health capacity. So that's what we call a holding statement. This was not written by a family member. It was not signed off by family members, but it was written by someone, and if you read Anthony Fury's column today in The Sun, someone who was known for trying to change the narrative and create a more positive narrative around Muslim Canadians. So, that you know, most of us had maybe thought that perhaps that name was of Muslim origin, and, you know, unfortunately, immediately, people jumped to conclusions about what that means and what his affiliations might uh, be. So uh, this holding statement basically drove the narrative in a direction which concentrated on mental health, lack of resources for mental health, what a psychotic break is, and also the need for more gun control in the city. A good holding statement will do that. A good holding statement will take out the conjecture and present what it seems to be fact. So, you know, you remember when during the horrible Young and Finch um, the van tragedy, right, Scott? Yep. There was no holding statement that came out so fast. You know, I think the guy was uh, just living with his dad, and, you know, clearly there was no professional capability in terms of creating such a statement. So what does the media do? The media goes to the social media sources. They go look at the Facebook. They go take the pictures, and they create their own profile of who they believe this guy is. So in addition, when we come back to Faisal Hassan, in addition to this very professional, professional articulate statement, somebody had already gone into a social media and completely scrubbed it. Not that the police can't find out what was on that social media, and because, as they have seized uh, a lot of his um, electronic and uh, uh, assets, but we as the public could certainly not go on there and draw our own conclusions. So why would the family do this when this is something that you would normally see a large corporation do? I'm thinking if, if I've lost a family member or a son and, and they've committed such an act, I'm not sure this would be my first priority. Well, exactly. So, so what does this say? It wasn't their first priority, but it was this, um, I'm trying to find the name here. Um, it, it was this particular gentleman who runs a uh, organization that uh, tries to create a more positive rhetoric about um, Muslim Canadians. And he kind of swooped in. He might have been affiliated with the family. I do believe that Faisal Hassan's dad was um, involved in creating the first mosque that was um, close to Thorn Thorncliffe Park. You're so, talking about Mohammed Hashim. Yes. So, uh, you know, perhaps there was some um, standing in the community, or I, I don't know. I mean, obviously this guy swooped in, said, I'm going to help you. I don't want them to be talking badly about your son. So, therefore, let's craft a statement, and then let's sort of keep the, the good side up there as opposed to what his affiliations may be. Does the intention here of what this was supposed to be, has the, has the opposite been accomplished? Well, in, in other words, by coming out with something so unusual at su- at su- and the timing of it all, does it, does it raise more questions than it does answers? Well, it does. I mean, it does for those of us who are media watchers. I mean, the average person isn't going to question the speed or the articulate, uh, you know, of a, the, uh, the, um, you know the, the content of a statement. They're just going to take it at face value because it was a statement. You know, the way it also came out to Scott was kind of weird. I mean, the statement was sent directly to CBC. So perhaps CBC was sniffing around, and uh, that's why they got hold of the statement at first, uh, or at least were the first to broadcast it before all all the other media outlets jumped on. I would say that the statement was... um, 
was well done in a strange sense and achieved its objective because since the shooting, what have been all the headlines? Yeah, all it's the all headlines about and all the conversation on talk mm-hmm. radio has been about mental health, lack of mental health resources, and the need for stricter gun control. Which, of course, is a very important component to the story, but it is not the whole story here. No, it's not the whole story, which is why people like myself and obviously Anthony Fury, if you read Today's Sun, as I mentioned, said this seemed awfully strange. This seemed, you know, this statement was strange. Whoops, and there it was as I finally found it. (laughs) Um, And it was actually written by, and I'm trying to find the, um, although it was signed off, by the Hussein family. It was provided by the gentleman you just said, the uh, Mohammed Hashim, a full-time organizer for the Toronto, New York Region Labor Council, and, and also uh, apparently connected to um, framing a new narrative for Muslims in Canada. Now, let me break in here. Is yeah. there anything wrong with trying to frame a positive narrative? Is there anything wrong with doing what he did? Because, look, you and I are doing the same thing anyway. So is there anything wrong, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, obviously, is there anything wrong with trying to put the right foot forward and making sure that this family is represented correctly instead of being dragged through the mud like you and I are doing right now? Okay, no, there's nothing wrong, but there is something wrong when you are intentionally hiding something. So the news today, as I heard before I got on the phone with you, is that they have found out where the gun came from. They have found out that... His brother, who is in a coma, um, had gang ties in this city, and that the gun came from some source in the U.S. So nobody is linking anything to anything right now. I mean, nobody's saying that this was ISIL or ISIS-led. Nobody's saying that this was gang-related. But, you know, the pieces are starting to fall into place, which will essentially chip away at the narrative. Let me give you another example, which is not exactly related to this, but had the same effect for the first 24 to 48 hours. Remember we talked at length about Gian Gomeshi. Yep. And when the rumors came out about him, the first thing he did was that he wrote a statement. And that statement was on his Facebook page, and it went everywhere. Yeah. Um, it basically, for the first 48 hours, cut the narrative off at the knees, saying, listen, this is something I do. This is no big deal. We found out later that, yeah, it indeed was a big deal. But for those 48 hours, you know, it, people, a lot of people gave him the benefit of the doubt. So, you know, uh, the same thing, remember years ago with David Letterman? Again, not a direct comparison. But, you know, he was charged with having an affair uh, with a woman who, and someone was attempting to extort him over that particular action. And I remember watching Letterman one night. He says, okay, well, you know, I've done some pretty bad things in my life. And the audience laughs. And then he goes on to describe what all those bad things were Mm -hmm. and what's going on. So he got out ahead of the story. The whole reason for a holding statement is to get ahead of the story. And if your holding statement holds water, that is true, is evidence-based, it is not meant to hide the truth in any way, then yeah, there absolutely is merit to a holding statement. And as you said before, Scott, corporations do this all the time. When there's something happening, perhaps it's with a food product. They'll put out a statement very quickly and say, okay, we've heard that this has happened. We feel terrible. We have an investigation that's going on now. We'll keep you informed. It doesn't really say anything, but it, it, it keeps the media at bay, and it does help set up another narrative. So is this press release getting ahead of the story, or is it hiding something? It's hard for me to say. Um, there, know, Therein lies it, the debate. I, you know, I, I hate to speculate, and I always tell my clients, don't speculate. But, you know, as evidence will come out, we will know, Scott, if this um, press release slash holding statement has been hiding something. And the bad part of that, the real downside of that, if it is true that there is more than what we see here um, with this shooter, is that all this talk about mental illness, will be perceived as you said to me yesterday, are we using this as a default? Mm-hmm. Is mental illness sort of the catch-all for everything that we consider depraved behavior? And it shouldn't be. Mental health, health, mental, uh, health is a, and mental illness is a very, very important issue, not just in the city, but internationally. And to demean the importance of this issue by trying to explain away the actions of a deranged person does no favors to the true narrative of of mental health and the interventions that we need uh, in the system. 
But instead, it, it paints everyone the same brush. People feel jaded. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. All right, one thing else. I want another thing I wanted to, to tackle with you today, and uh, and we talked about this last night on on Alex Pearson's show. Um, the report that came out from CBS News. Mm-hmm. CBS News, a pretty credible news organization in the United States, um, and, and just the way they present something as opposed to the way we present something up here. Uh, this was uh, from CBS, 7 o'clock last night. It, uh, it quotes uh, Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale saying, at this stage, based on the state of the investigation, which is led by Toronto Police Service, there is no connection between that individual and national security. Then CBS goes on to say in the next paragraph, but a law enforcement so- a source told CBS News that Faisal Hussein visited Islamic State of Iraq and Syria websites and may have expressed support for the terrorist group. They are looking into whether whether Hussein may have lived at one time in Afghanistan and possibly Pakistan, the source said. There is no indication that Hussein was directly or direct or sorry, was directed by ISIS to carry out the attack. Why does that seem so different than what we're hearing from Canadian officials? Well, I think that there is a shorter walk between a Muslim name and the definition or the link but the potential link to terrorism in the United States. I think it's a so this is a so this and is a U.S. spin on that. What a lot of us aren't willing to say right now here in the Canadian media. At that point, nothing had been proven. Nothing. There are no linkages been shown, and the police are being very tight-lipped. So whoever the source was that knew what was going on with his social activity, because we won't know. Maybe it was somebody who got in there really quickly or got into the back channels. Who knows, Scott? I mean, I don't know. And at the end of the day, they're really not saying anything different than what we're saying. It's just that they're admitting it. I mean, obviously, you would think police are looking to see if there's websites. You would think police would look to see if there's any terrorist organizations, his past travel, all of that. You would think they're doing that anyway. All CBS has done is said that. So why don't we? You know, it could be the questions that are being asked or the questions that aren't being asked or the answers that aren't being given. If you do a quick um, survey of the media today, and I did a quick one with the three papers, um, you know, most of it says that there are no linkages to ISIS or ISIL. There's no gang linkages that we can speak of. So right away, they're not hitting the terrorism button, and they're not hitting um, the radicalized Muslim button. The only paper that really has done that and said so overtly is The Sun. But, you know, that's more of their providence to come out right. with that, especially in opinion mm-hmm. pieces. So what CBS has done is saying, okay, we're not going to wait for the potential, the potential elephant in the room to come out. We're just going to say it. And we can also show lots of backup as to, you know, what's been going on with Canada. Like, look at what Fox News did. Fox News did the same thing. Even their highlights on their screens were saying, you know, terrorism attack. They, they call this terrorism right away. They're not waiting for somebody to tell them whether it is or whether it isn't. But remember what kind of environment we're living in now, Scott. You know, news doesn't have to be right on the first get-go. You can go and cor- correct it later. Yeah. But whatever you come out with first is pa- basically what people are going to hear and what people are going to believe and not necessarily see your follow-up correction. So Fox News, you know, they are more inflammatory. They are going to throw the, uh, the first grenade or the first Molotov cocktail into the fire to start the fire. So they're going to call it terrorism. CBS, I don't think they quite called it that. No. But they've definitely strongly alluded to that. The Canadian papers are so far poo-pooing it. They're saying that there is no linkage that we can report on. They're being much more careful about that. So, you know, it really is an interesting case study on when you have uh, an attack on home soil, how different media in different countries, which have different perspectives because of their history, will interpret it. I can certainly understand officials not wanting to create chaos. But to me, this only adds to the confusion. You know, you can you know you can easily say if you're a police official, no, there's absolutely no indication at this point to think this is linked to terrorism. But we are looking at it. We are looking at travel patterns. We are looking at websites. Why not just say that, and then keep both sides of the fence happy? 
You know, I, I need to. I, need, I think you need to consider that when there's an investigation going on, there's only so much the public needs to know. The public absolutely does have a thirst for information, but I think I have to respect those, um, the, the authorities of law, to be able to do their investigation without de- detailing a timeline of what they're looking at and when they're looking at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would love to know as much as you would, Scott, but honestly, do we really need to know? No, but again, I'm not asking for information that's green. What I'm asking for is just admit you're investigating these angles. You know, why not say, yes, we're looking at a terrorism angle. Yes, we're looking at a mental health issue angle. Yes, we're looking at how we got a gun. Yes, we're looking if he's involved in any gang. Like, why say, instead of saying, no, we've got no reason to believe any of that. I mean, oh, he just did it for fun. I mean, come on. Why not admit what you're looking at and, you know, and, 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 and put people's minds at ease that you, you were at least investigating this stuff? I I have to kind of disagree with you here, Scott. Not allowed. <laughs> because I think that, you know, I think that people truly believe that the police are looking at all angles and don't need to detail that for us. I would then why do you have to detail mental illness? Force to be uncovering every stone in this. So why do we have to emphasize mental illness, though, but we can't emphasize there might be a terrorist link? I, I think that, you know what, I don't know. And I think that the, the, without evidence, nobody wants to say that this is a terrorist link and whip up undue fury if there is none supposed to be there. So they go to the default position, it must be mental illness. Well, and they're really, you know, this is all being driven by the family statement, Scott. Let's not forget that. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's the only piece of, you know, quote-unquote hard information. I don't want to use the word factual because I think some of it's factual and I think that there's a lot of holes. Because the guy who wrote this statement, um, Mohammed Hussein, I believe, you know, when he was asked by the media to comment, you know, as much as he's trying to change the narrative about Muslim Canadians, I think there were media that were going in a different direction and that was with the Toronto Sun. So when they called him first, and he saw probably Joe Warmington's column, mm. which pulls no punches today. He says, I'm not going to talk to you because you're taking a completely different angle. Which well, to me just takes know, all like, the credit. On. I know. This t- that sounds <laughs> like know. a counselor in town, you know, trying to boycott our radio station because he doesn't like what we say. Are you kidding me? So your answer is to take a voice away? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that if you're going to be in the public eye, you know, what is it? If you can't stand the heat, get out of the Well, kitchen. here, you said it exactly, Alyssa. Here's a guy who writes a damn press release, then refuses to talk to the media about it. What the heck is that? Well, that's just lack of credibility. So whenever Bingo. you have a press release, even Bingo. my own consultancy, and I'm not putting out press releases like this, like, let, let me make that very clear. But if I'm putting out a press release on behalf of an organization, let's say a federal health care agency, if I'm doing something like that, it's factual, it's evidence-based, it's been signed off six ways to Sunday. And it's certainly not done overnight because though that's not, sometimes that's, you know, by, by and large, that's not what I do. But uh, when I do do it, the, everybody is corralled. Within hours, you have a statement, it's been approved, and that's only done if you have a crisis communications plan and everybody knows who's on call. So it's, I, I think that we are all just going to wait as the details uh, leak out. I think that this story is going to continue to run, obviously, until there is more reporting or the, the police continue to make more statements. Fascinating stuff. Alyssa Freeman has been with us. Uh, good eye yesterday, too, Alyssa. My goodness. Alyssa Freeman, PR <laughs> principal there. Uh, cool angle. Thanks for the chat. Much appreciated again. Thanks for having me on, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.